guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 65. It is a momentous occasion. I am here sitting at my desk with a microphone in front of me, holding a glass of red wine that has not been opened for about eight months, which is close to the amount of time it's been since we last had a Berserk episode, uh, ten months ago or so. 337 landed. We're now here to discuss episode 338, so it's a big time to be a Berserk fan. Not only because that 10-month break is over, but also because the promise of monthly releases is now coming to fruition. There was a date at the end of the episode, of course, that let us know that the end of August, that 339 will come. So, as promised, we're looking at monthly releases. So, this is big news for everybody that's a Berserk fan. And, likewise, activity on the forum has been just about off-the-rocks crazy. Uh, well, it's a four-year high, let's say. Since 2011, we've never had this much activity, actually. So, it's an exciting time to be a Berserk fan, and an exciting time to be a member of Skullin.net. So, if you guys haven't checked out, the thread 338 has been popping off, so go check all those things out. And I'm here today to discuss episode 338 with my co-admins, Azeel and Griff. One thing I wanted to start out with this episode was, I really like the pacing of everything. Uh, the way the episode starts, uh, the ebb and flow of everything. I'm assuming everyone here has uh, read the episode, otherwise this is not going to make a lot of sense, but just the way it starts with this dramatic shot of Rickard kind of looking behind him as he walks away. Uh, but, you know, moving from there, you know, things kind of slow down, but then it's kind of winding up as he reaches this decision point about what he's going to be, and everything just kind of goes crazy immediately after that, with this, after this emotional moment with Rakshas' appearances and... The Tapasas showing up and throwing a column. I just like how everything's kind of layered on top of each other and it kind of unfolds or unwinds at the very end there. Yeah, it's one thing Mura, you know, does often is he doesn't hesitate to skip the boring stuff. Like, you know, even the way Rickert leaves the castle, you know, it took, you know, three episodes for him to finally get to Griffiths. But when he leaves, you know, you get a shot of him looking back, then Griffiths, Locus crushes a pillar, Silat, then bam, he's already back with the girls. Like, you know, three hours could have passed, you know, Mura just gets right to to business. You know, same thing for when he leaves to go around the town and think a bit. Uh, like you know, they cut the whole thing. Like he's leaving, then he's in the forge and place where they're doing the weapons. Then he's in top on the top of the city. You know, there's like no in between parts. <clears throat> I also feel like him taking his time with you know just showing Rickard's thoughts and you know his feelings on the city and sort of how he's torn about the whole thing. Yeah, kind of lends weight to when that action starts. You know, those like three pages. You know, where Roxas shows up and is threatening him and is cl- clearly intending to kill him right at that moment. And it almost, I mean, it gives it a lot more weight than, you know, if, you know, oh, Rakshas is going to try to kill Ricker, even though we know Ricker and, you know, he's a popular character in one of the old Falcons. It's just a matter of that, you know, that almost became like his own eulogy, you know, what he was sort of saying before and just sort of his thoughts and he's come to this place in his life and it just made it all the more you know, sad and menacing and meaningful when it was like, it, it, yeah. I mean, it just felt like, it felt like a death scene, you know, it's at dusk and, you know, the assassin shows up. So it just made it all the more poignant, I thought. It was just very effective storytelling, even though hopefully I don't think Rickard is uh, actually in any danger of perishing. Yeah, and I like that. It's something Mira does often, but a character is lost in thought, you know, and then the danger comes right at him. And yeah. some things like, I feel like even for the reader, you know, 
you know, you yourself are a bit lost in, you know, thinking about the character, reminiscing and everything, and then bam, it hits you. So it also goes back to what Walter was saying. The ebb and flow is very efficient, you know, in that regard, very effective. The other thing I was struck by this episode was Rickert's rediscovering old technologies. And you haven't seen that in the translation yet, but it's interesting. It's made pretty clear that Rickert's, uh, you know, a place has been carved for him in Falconia in terms of his engineering talents. Well, yeah, there's, there's going to be a grave carved for him, a tombstone. <laughs> he already, he kind of fucked that up. I mean, he could have been a little more, yeah, you know, I, mm, nice to see you again, Griffith. <laughs> like, that would have been. Yeah, he kind of made his decision when it came to that, which is what episode 337 is all about. Um, Azealia brought up something interesting in the thread, actually. Uh, comparing Rickert's moment now to Gut's moment uh, when he was leaving the Falcons, having to make a decision about whether to stay or whether he should go. And, you know, once again, it's because of actions Griffith has just taken. Well, yeah, there's also the fact, you know, like what I was hinting at also is, Jose, Rickert could stay in Falconia, but, you know, the thing is, he had a family, which he lost, the band of the Falcon, and now he's found a new one in Erika, and, and he reflects upon that. But at the same time, you know, uh, which is something Gus did as well in volume, you know, uh, 26, uh, after the, the Cliff House, you know, he realized that he had something to live for after all, you know, beyond Casca, beyond Revenge, you know, he had found new friends. But the thing is, yeah, for Rika, it's different because, like, he can't stand the idea of living in a city that was built on top of the grave of his, you know, previous family. But he, you know, like, does he have a choice? Can he really go live outside with Erica, you know, a place filled with monsters? So it's a it's really interesting dilemma, actually. And it's made even more interesting by the fact that he now has apostles, you know, out there for his blood. Well, yeah, now... Uh... I, th- I think that makes the decision a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, actually. It's like, well, I guess I don't really have that choice, as it turns out. I mean, unless Griffith swoops in and, you know, can guarantee his safety. But can Griffith guarantee his safety? That's, you know, to me, one of the big points of this episode was, you know, they have these apostles conspiring in the background. If you can't tell them, like, knock it off and have it stick, I mean, that's pretty... That's bad form. I yeah. mean, this is all bad form if he doesn't know about it, but, uh, you know, it can be fixed. Whereas, yeah, that would, I mean, that would be really strange. You know, uh, actually... But what I mean is Griffith, you know, held up his hand in the last episode, so... Yeah, but it was to Locus. You know, Rakshas could, could be acting on his own. And actually, while I don't yeah. think... Uh, why I don't think Griffiths will show up here because that would be like, you know, really going out of his way. But what if Zod come? you know, I don't know. What if Zod comes around and tells Rakshas, fuck off, you know, like, you know, you heard the boss just, you know, and he reluctantly goes. Yeah, that that would add up to me. Of all the apostles, I, I would guess, you know, Zod would make kind of make the most sense to intervene here because we haven't seen Zod since these Falconia episodes came out, so... We're kind of expecting to see him around every corner, but well, where is he? Where is Zod? You know, I'm really curious about what his role is in this new place. Well, unless unless it he's elf um, cheating all the elves. <laughs> that <laughs> he's doing, and, and Roxas is teleporting back and forth. <laughs> for <this laughs> one oh who, yeah, uh, you know. Oh yeah. Now, no, I mean, it also, I mean, this is kind of threatening symbolically to the entire sort of harmony that's there, obviously. You wouldn't want a whole crowd of people to say, hey, are those the monster guys that protect us eating that kid? <laughs> you know, that would 
<laughs> that would be bad. That would be a bad look. But I also wonder if this is eventually, whatever happens next, whether Zod intervenes or Griffith, you know, calls it off or or the Tapasa and Rickert, you know, escape. Is this going to be something, do you think he's going to get separated from his family now and kind of be on the outside looking in and realize, you know, it, where it's going to become like he has to come back, but like to rescue them, essentially? Well, you know, as a secretary, one of the big things is, you know, it really be, I actually would really love for him to, I don't know, go out and live with uh, Bakyaraka in the forest, you know, and to see how they survive, you know, but, you know, it's possible they just live in the sewers of Falconia, but, you know, I'd really like to see, you know, what it's like outside, beyond the glimpse we saw uh, when Rickard and the other survivors arrived in the city. And yeah, that would be pretty dramatic. So do, they have a, do they have some sort of home base nearby that has, you know, say dozens of assassins, you know, basically the no-name guys that we just see, you know, with the poison yeah. arrows that Rox just takes out, you know, like, you know, like 24 of those guys just hanging out somewhere. Uh, or you know, if, yeah, they're all broken up into different little cells and things. I actually picture a, a tree village, you know, kind of like the Ewoks, uh, where all these, you know, <laughs> assassins, because I, I think there's still probably quite quite a few of them left. So I'm, I'm imagining, you know, like, I don't know, several hundreds of them, you know, and uh, yeah, fending off against whatever beasts are there in the forest, you know, and uh, surviving like that. Actually, now that you mention it, you know, the Bakiraka, the average guys, well, you their know, outfit is not too dissimilar from Ewoks. They have the, the loincloth going over them and then the just the exposed legs. That's pretty Ewok-like. Those Bakirakas, uh, those Tapasa, I mean, specifically, are just Ewoks that shave their furs, you know. That's why they're, you know, you, you can't see all the muscle, but it's because of the they fur. Actually, they have the same, yeah, they have the same eyes. <laughs> <laughs> the Tapasa. Okay, let's let's stop. Let's stop. You know, like I mean, desecrating Berserk here for a second, okay. please. <laughs> and, and and I initiated it, so it's a bit ironic. Okay, I guess we should probably move on. Um, and typically, we'll you know do as we always do a page by page. Kind of reluctant to do it, but I mean, there's just so much in this episode. I can't imagine we're going to catch everything if we don't do this. So, but before we do that, I wanted to ask you guys how you think the fight's going to go, how this is going to evolve. What's going to happen next? Uh, what's the fate of the Tapasa? Oh, I can't talk about it. So, you know, uh, we'll see that Pilar the Urumi's next episode. That's the only thing I care about. The fucking Urumi. It's been almost 30 volumes, 29 volumes since we last saw Silat, like, get really serious like, about something. I feel like that would be the best weapon for Rakshas, yeah. you know, to yeah. use against him. If, uh, but maybe just because we saw him cut up Gut's cape, so it's just, you know, that's in our mind, that's the cape-cutting weapon. Yeah, <laughs> so he needs well, to get you know, uh, honestly, I think it would be pretty effective and pretty badass, so I, I really want to see that. Well, the Fox just though has already been crushed and is going to either, you know, come out as an <laughs> apostle or say, you know, or do the, you know, missed me, even though clearly he should have been smashed. It's like whatever happens in the next episode, it's going to be good. It doesn't matter if it's big or small or if Gassad shows up or not. It's going to be highly entertaining and like just the possibilities are entertaining. Like Rickert possibly getting to see these inside of the Baki Raka. It's like he's going to be leading the most interesting life besides Guts like in the series practically. The, the thing being that even if he stays in Falconia, it's like we're witnessing the you know, the beginning of the resistance in a way, because, you know, like, oh, that's a good now call, there's man. a group of people who know what's up, you know, they have Daiba, they have Lucas, they have Rickert, 
And I, I mean, you know, like uh, they, they know Raban, you know, you know, there's a connection that's been established. So it feels like NZ apostles have threatened him. So it feels like, you know, something is beginning to form. So either way, you know, uh, it's, it's, that's a pretty important moment I think we're witnessing. I wonder how they would, like, bring other people to their cause, though. Like, even, you know, say, like, Owen and Raven, if it was like, uh, oh, the apostles, they what? threatened me, they're monsters. They'd be like, well, the nobles always threatened the commoners, so it's not really that much different. You know, I actually wondered, it's something I've wondered for, for a while, but what if Raban and Owen end up on, you know, different sides, you know, in the end, you know? I, yeah. I, I've always thought, you know, like, Maybe not always, but, you know, I've been thinking that maybe Raban will end up siding with Rickert and everything because he's always been kind of a skeptic, while Owen seems to have really drunk the Kool-Aid on this one. He's like, you know, he's a you know, palace guard, you know, a chief, you know, whatever. So I'm thinking they may, might end up, you know, and, you know, it's incredible because can you imagine it's such a minor part of the story, but it still feels like so big if they would end up yeah. being enemies. So, it's actually kind of consistent the way Mira has betrayed the two, uh, Owen and Raban. You know, Owen and uh, Owen previously in Volume Seventeen, we saw him at the court. You know, he's kind of been our court perspective. Yeah, he was there at the death of the king in Volume Seventeen, and at the same time, Raban was out there in the muck among the plague. He was seeing everyone else die, essentially. Kind of a different scenario, you know, for those two. Yeah, and, and it's mirrored here with Raban being the one out in the fields of Falconia, or outside Falconia, the outskirts, and Owen's here, you know, living it up in the palace. Yeah, he's not completely, you know, like I don't know, the wool hasn't been pulled completely over his face. <clears throat> it just kind of makes you wonder what their role is going to be in the future. I know we touched on that in previous podcasts, and it sure seems like you know they have different perspectives. At least I wonder about Owen. You know, being completely buying this whole Falconia thing, whereas Raban certainly seems to be a little bit more skeptical about everything. Sorry, I just noticed the last page. You just noticed the uh, you talked about the Urmi earlier. Yes, uh, you can actually see the handles of the Urmi yes. in the very last shot on the side of Stilat. So they're definitely there. Yes, of course. You, you know what? The, that's the first thing I look for. I was like, yes, yes. Well, bringing up the Urmi does kind of raise the question of how this fight's going to evolve, because obviously it's going to be scaling up from here, and, you know, these guys have sparred before, but this is a totally different circumstance, because before, both sides kind of had other business to attend to, they couldn't fully engage in the fight, but here, I can't see either side backing down from this fight, you know, so... I kind of wonder who's going to be left standing after all this is over. Well, you know, like, l- let's just speculate just, you know, on what we know. Like, I think it's literally impossible that Rakshas will die. Like, that's, you know, no matter who you think of it, he's, you know, he's an apostle. And these guys are super strong. And they're probably, like, the most formidable force, you know, human force, aside from Guts in the whole series. But, you know, like, they're still not, you know... Uh, they can't do it. So if he transforms or everything, so I think you know they won't be able to kill him. And the only real question is like, what casualties will they have? You know, either they manage to fan him off, and you know uh, he doesn't do anything, or maybe you know one of them gets gets killed, and that's that's a possibility. So, but yeah, to me, you know, like those are the only things. Like either the fight is stopped, they flee or they manage to fend him off and something interrupts them and, you know, uh, it's not resolved or he kills one of them and, you know, they still go away. But, you know, I, I just don't see them, I don't know, beating him up and him retreating or anything like that. I don't think that's a, that's a thing. 
And I like that they want him for, like, I mean, Rakshas wants him for his own reasons, but Silat wants him for information. And, you know, it's pretty cool that, you know, you know, ever since Volume 17, you know, as a back character, I've been out there for information. And, and you know, and that feels like, you know, this is almost coming to a conclusion. And it's pretty cool to think that they've gathered intel, you know, over over the t- over time, you know, for Ganishka and other things. But, you know, how to say it feels like they've really been a lasting presence, you know, while so many others have come and gone. And it's also consistent because we've seen Silat in the past gathering intel on the Falcon and before it was for Ganishka, of course. Yeah. But now it's for, you know, kind of basically altruistic reasons. You know, you have to kind of wonder what his intentions are here. He's not serving any master. He's serving himself, wanting to know the, the truth about what happened here. Yeah. Humanity's kind of been led along with this guy, but who is this guy? And what, I mean, like my, my question for that is like, what does he intend to do with that knowledge once he gets it out of Rickert? Like maybe Rickert gives him everything on a silver platter. Well, you know. What, what's he, what can he do with that information? You know, because they're slaves essentially and have been. I think he's more sensitive to that idea, you know, of like true freedom and freedom of choice and, you know, just being able to, you know, have self-control over, you know, your people and your destiny. So I think he probably has a unique perspective than most, you know, over what is a good life, you know, whereas like everyone else might be comfortable with this, but he sees it differently. You know, in a world, there are struggles, you know, which is pretty much like guts and, I feel like this whole thing is really a setup for their eventual joining with Gus. Like, I mean, I, I know it's not new. We've, we've talked about this years ago already. But, you know, when you think back to what they talk about in Exodus, uh, you know, that episode, you know, uh, <clears throat> with Jarif, they really lay out how they've relied on their own strength and their bodies and, you know, their flesh and blood and, and all that. And, and I think that's really a key component of their current, you know, uh, opposition to Griffith or refusal to accept. I mean, that, yeah, it's almost word. completely counter to like the God hand, yeah, you know, sort of way. So it will be interesting to see how they would react to Gus, actually, and especially to magical beings. You know, that's, that's like the alliance of yeah, that's, that would be a beautiful thing. You know, the best of humans and the best of uh, of the astral world. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're just having, you know, in our heads, you know, the imagination of, like, Owen and Rabin's, you know, handshake, but with uh, Guts and Salat, and then 800 yeah. assassins come out from behind Salat, and it's like, yeah, we'll join you. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> all right. And, and Gus would still be able to make fun of him, you know. <laughs> like, oh, nice, the jester's <laughs> is out. Oh, <laughs> have you been in such a... I eat first, I kicked your ass. <laughs> <laughs> do you hypnotize a beast so they don't eat you? You know, they... <laughs> we should probably do a page by page uh, review. Yeah, sure, yeah. man. I love the I love the page by page. It's not the only way. It's the only way not to miss, you know, a ton of details that we're not immediately attracted to, like what's going to happen at the end of the series. <laughs> so, so, so about that carriage on the bridge, you know, that's passing by. I have lots of things to say about that. <laughs> So <laughs> I actually do have something on page one, caravan aside. Just uh, we've talked a little bit about the fog yeah. uh, surrounding this area of the palace, this mysterious fog, you know, layering the kind of the base level of the, of the palace. And we saw them in you know episode three thirty four, three thirty five, pandemonium. Uh, it looks a little foreboding there, but you can actually see it here from this perspective. On the very first page, you see uh, that vertical panel of Griffith. You can see him looking down. You can see the fog actually goes to that layer of the palace as well, that this side of the palace. So 
I guess my initial theory was that the fog was emanating from pandemonium as a result of the apostles gathered there, and if apostles emit fog, you know. But this is actually something else. This is something, I'm assuming, some other mysterious fog. Well, I or... think it's also because it's so tall, you know. It's like almost, you know, sometimes, depending on the weather, when a hill is really tall, you know, there'll be like, you know, fog, you know. Like, it's almost, you know, you know, it's not a mountain, but because of the weather, fog can form, you know. So I think because it's so high, you know, that's kind of, uh, at least that's how uh, I view it. And it's probably also so they don't have to draw all the details, you know, down below. <laughs> oh, yeah, it could totally be. Just covering up something for artistic reasons, yeah, but I don't know. I just Why, yeah, but, you know, like, do really want that, but, yeah, yeah. I, I think it serves a, a double purpose, a convenient double purpose. I like that shot when Rickert looks back and, you know, like, you know, presumably he can see Griffiths also looking at him and it kind of reminds me of that scene you know of uh, Griffiths on the cliff looking at the ship leave you know or Ritanus so yeah I actually do really like that Miura spent time on this first page kind of showing us Rickert looking over his shoulder it didn't really resonate with me nearly as much for the slap it kind of set in when I was watching this page and then following page you're just about leaving the spectacle and magnificence of Falconia behind for a more humble life and, you know, kind of rejecting out of hand uh, the life that Griffith had been promising for so long. This is the goal of his dream, probably never realized so magnificently as a human, but, you know, here it is, and Rickert's saying no to that. And I know that's, of course, all been touched upon in other podcasts and was pretty apparent from after the slap, but just watching these two part ways, there there was a sense of finality to it for me that Really resonated on this particular page. Yeah, and I like that you get to see Rika's full face, but you don't see Griffiths. You know, you only see his yeah. mouth. And well, in that mouth, I can't tell. I can't make. You know, you can look at that and interpret. You know, half a dozen different emotions. Yeah. From it, it's it's very to me. It's very hard to read. You know, like it's yeah. and it, it's something Mira does. You know, uh, regularly when he wants. You know, especially I think he's done several times with Griffiths. So that you actually don't get to know what he really feels, you know. It's like, you know, yeah. it could be... He could be appreciating his moxie. He could be sad. He could be, <laughs> you're, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> you know, I'm going to send my assassin to kill him now. Yeah, You could don't be... know what he's <laughs> thinking there. Yeah, you better you better leave now because Rakshas is coming after yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, or he could be feeling, you know, sort of melancholy and nostalgic, you know, about like, hey, here's someone that really, who actually... As as much as I didn't enjoy that, still relates to me. I don't know. I don't think his expression's that mysterious, really. I mean, okay. yes, we don't know, you know what's happening in his head as he's looking at that, but I think downturned edges of the mouth and it's, it's kind of a frown. But if, even if you want to ignore that and if you don't want to lead it, if you don't want to read into that little visual, the fact that this panel even exists, you know, just focusing on his mouth, not showing his eyes. It seems to me that Mira is kind of drawing attention to that and, and asking the readers to kind of read into that expression. We're, I think we're supposed to be gathering meaning from that. Yeah. Otherwise, he could have just showed a completely blank stare or he could have had his fake smile on as we see, you know, as he turns around. I think it's. I think we're supposed to know kind of well, what so he's thinking Just because there. when he turns around, he has such a, you know, the perfect smile, like, oh, hi. And how I would read that, I mean, I would say disappointment or... Uh, uh, not sadness, but you know, I think I think it wasn't what he expected to happen, and quite simply, and I doubt that happens very much with Griffith as it is now. Everything seems to have been according to plan, and 
here something stopped him dead in his tracks yeah. you know so he's, he's processing that I, I think the, the thing is you can't tell if it's like melancholy or disappointment or if he's just thinking you know and but I agree that in itself that's very significant even the fact he's reminiscing or thinking or just he's contemplative about it you know and uh, I think like I said in the thread well, the simple fact he actually went out of his way to go to this balcony to watch Rickard go is in itself a proof that something's going on. It's creepy, <laughs> almost. It's almost weird. You know, he's like following him with his eyes as he goes down the stairs and is leaving. Yeah. And, you know, Rickard looks back like... Uh, I mean, what? he's looking back and it seems kind of normal, this moment. But he, could, he really should be looking back and wincing like, Ugh, why are you staring at me? Go. It's really creepy. One thing I wondered is, like... I I wonder how complicated it is to get from you know the garden to this place, you know, and like how long it took Ricker to actually exit. I I know it's completely trivial stuff, but like how long has actually Griffin staring at that spot yeah, waiting like, for him to pop out? How much time has passed? Like I I'm guessing that uh, Ricker's you know entrance and exit have you know put an end to the little tea party. And, you know, then they all went back to their business. But the thing is, like, yeah, how long did it take for Rickard to actually... Because we know it took him a long time to go up. So maybe it's actually been, you know, I don't know, 30 minutes. And, you know, uh, say Griffiths, having moved back to another part of the palace, actually went out of his way to 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 see, you know, that. I, th- I think, uh, you know, it's a bit... I mean, I don't think we necessarily need to see the complete route that they took. Uh, I mean, in Hollywood, you call that the magic of editing, right? You just yeah. join... Two scenes that were of importance, and you eliminate the interval just for you know expediency. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm just saying that you know, like there are less people. The you know the pontiff isn't there anymore. So it's interesting. Just in the contrast is also that clearly he cares about this, and then he turns around and it's back to non-business as usual. You know, just like oh, it seems I was rejected. La la la. Well, regarding his companions, you know, I was a little disappointed that we didn't get more of a dramatic reaction shot from them. I mean, their reaction shot was basically like what a sheep might do. Uh, I mean, part of that disappointment stems from the fact that I actually have built up expectations for something here. I think I said in the last podcast that I was hoping to see kind of a seed of doubt from Sonya or even Mule. But, you know, that that this wasn't the scene for that, clearly. The one I'd want to see interact with him the most i mean uh, well sonia probably actually more yeah. but she can just read his mind and actually get so much information that would be you know fantastic that would probably put a bunch of you know probably put her into you know, inner conflict but M- him and mule would actually be interesting especially now if he basically because i can see mule you know somewhat confrontationally you know he'd have those same feelings as you know locus and Rakshas, but, you know, obviously less murderous, you know, just sort of like, why did you, you know, hit my uh, master? You know, why did you hit the Falcon? It would just be interesting to see Rickert challenged on that level to actually explain himself. And also because Mule is relatively same age as Rickert. Yes. So it kind of makes sense that he would take special offense at that, you know? Someone, and plus they're not unlike each other in a different life, you know, that would be Rickert, you know, in that role. Yeah, well, you know. As a matter of fact, it was. It it also brings back, you know, the confrontation between Mule and Isidro, you know, that kind of rivalry yeah. between, you know, people of the similar age. But I think the the one actually more interested in is Sonia because she's uh, the one that's most, I don't know, she's a free spirit, you know, and while she's blindly devoted to Griffiths, I think she's one most likely to question things, you know. 
And among all of them, Sonya seems the most, I don't know, the term is, on, I want to say on the fence. Uh, well, I'm not sure about the fence, but yeah. I just mean in terms of her trying to find her place in the group. It certainly seems like she's, she's kind yeah, of wavering she's, a bit, at least more than the others. She's kind of considering her place she's, in the group. Yeah, but I mean, it's, I feel like that's more acting out because she wants to be, you know, essentially she's got this infatuation with Griffith, like a girl, yeah. like a schoolgirl crush, yeah. you know? Well, yeah, that, that's true. But my what, what I meant is that she's a, you know, I think her personality is very particular. She's a, a free spirit. She's wild card a bit, you know. Like she doesn't she doesn't shy away from anything, and uh, including Griffiths. And so I I think she'd be the one, you know, like most likely to actually like you know what she did in Britain is to go out and seek regret and be like you know so what did you do and just invade his thoughts. You know, and be like, you know, inquisitive and uh, curious, that kind of stuff. So, and I actually think we will get to see that, you know, like to me, it's a given, you know, like that it didn't happen in this episode really didn't bother me at all because I think there's some things that will be better with age, you know, like when a little time has passed and you, and you see them reflecting on it, you know, like maybe at the, at the marriage, you know, or coronation ceremony, whatever, you know, when she's, you know, all the shit, the procession is going on and she's like sinking back to that and sleeping out and, you know, going to, you know, I, I can see this kind of stuff happening. Moving on, uh, we have this page, uh, one of my favorite reaction shots in recent memory, you know, <laughs> Locust gripping the, gripping the edge of the window there and, guys, Locust is pissed off. Why is Locust so pissed? Holy crap, whoa. What does Locust have to be pissed about? <laughs> he's looking at Griffith and he's pissed. <laughs> Don't make fun of your uh, Reddit, you know, uh, flock, my dear Walter. Hey, people didn't know Locust was angry? Ah, I wouldn't say people. It was just a few, I guess that is people in the, one of the Reddit threads where I kind of, I guess I disconnected the events of 337 with a slap to this and they, I guess, forgotten uh, what how Locust had reaction, reacted at the time and that, Griffith held his hand up. I don't know. But it's fun, it's funny because you know he's had that sinister streak for a while. You know, even when Mule first met him, you know he was already pretty sinister. But we actually get to see. I, I think we get to see more and more of that side of him. The side that you know, despite the whole noble kind of stuff, he's pretty. You know, like he feels even more. What to say? Aggressive he's, than he Gr- might, Belt. No, yeah, he might be. I think he's like the biggest phony. <laughs> of like all the apostles he is like the ultimate monster pretending to be a warrior oh yeah yeah definitely like, yeah yeah where it's like i kind of i like you know grunbeld seems to not really know any better he actually believes it but locus is you know yeah he he seems so diabolical and like knows the score yeah. and is so like you said sinister and just outright threatening rickert and to be defied like that you know yeah has to and- just eat him up it's, Ever since we've seen him, you know, just when he was scaring Mule, you know, when, you know, they were going yeah. by and not, not even meaning to, just intimidating him with his presence. Yeah. He's just always had that kind of, that conceit. And, you know, like when, when we said, you know, Jose Rachas is very creepy when he's at, you know, Rika's throat and everything, but I actually find locus you know behind you know his face you know stuck to rickers behind him as a as they're watching apostles you know gore and uh, ogre out you know yeah I find him even creepier he's like i wouldn't say he's like a pedophile but you know yeah he's uh he's pretty <laughs> creepy well you know and it's also like i said how he's sort of it's like this sort of the phoniness you know he can pretend to be so noble and good but he's really you know he seems rotten to the core and yeah. someone like roxas 
is just who he is. You know, he doesn't pretend to be uh, a good guy <laughs> yeah. or, you know, he's not he's not wearing fancy armor and like, you know, oh, hey, you know, I'm so great. And then he's evil behind the scenes. He's just he's the same all the time. Yeah. So I don't know. There's, a, there's an extra layer to uh, Lucas that makes him, in my mind, a little more contemptible. In addition to Locus's dramatic reaction shot and all that might foretell of the future, this page also reveals to us that the intruder from the pal to the palace was indeed Silat, or at least yeah. Silat, you know, and maybe some of the Bakiraka as well. But here we see him spying on uh, Locus and seeing Locus's reaction, and presumably he was there for the slap as well, uh, which is kind of what he says at the very end of this episode that he wants to know what Rickert knows about the Falcon. So. Now we yeah, know. And he, and he was spying at Griffiths before that, you know. That's, uh... And also, like in that page, uh, just if you squint, you can just barely see Griffith helping Charlotte down the stairs with his hand, you know, being very gentlemanly, just seeing how those interact. It's just always neat for me, anyway. I just like to see small yeah. things like that in me are added. And Mule is not helping Sonia down the stairs. <laughs> Uh, he, he could be. It's it's well, kind of hard to tell. Yeah, his hand doesn't seem to be holding hers, but uh, yeah. <laughs> so, in addition to this episode, you know, revealing uh, the Tapasa and Silat as the infiltrators and seeking the truth about the Falcon, the other big deal with this episode, to me personally, was we learned that the ancient city of Geyseric and now uh, Falconia wasn't merely just an ancient sleeping city that, you know, existed long ago. Like, the significance of the city wasn't just that it unified the country and stopped war. It was also one of high technology and engineering. Like, it really does... You see these uh, this device, this water pump. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, actually. You know, from what Rickard says, it seems like they're gonna... You know, I mean, Rickard and the guy from the conversation, they're gonna, you know, install these, you know... Uh, in the whole city, so it's actually like a pretty big impact, you know, it's not like Rickert is just tinkering while little machine is, you know, the guy says, you know, he'll make sure, you know, how to say, uh, that the work is, you know, repercuted down the, the whole city, so it's uh, it's actually a, a pretty big thing, and I think, you know, we, we can see that Rickert is already playing a, a very important role, you know, even aside from the whole uh, Griffith thing. It kind of opens the door for all the other technologies that might be here. And it really does bring back that comparison about Greece uh, being in the ancient world that had crumbled and the technology and things that it had pioneered had to be rediscovered or, or reinvented before they could be, before technological, technological progress could continue as a civilization. So I just think it's neat that Mir is continuing that legacy uh, here. So to me, that does set up a big change from our previous perspective of, of that city as a place of merely prosperity and unity, but also now one of technological advancement. So it makes you think about how Mira is going to take that forward in the future. Yeah, and we could, you know, leap back to the, the statue and the whole thing. But yeah, from that just, you know, that moment, it goes to show that there's a lot of things about the city we're not here aware, we are not yet aware of, you know, like... It was we we've seen the huge expanse of it being restored, but we don't know what was in there, what was not in there, what parts were left off, and Jose, like we know modifications have been made to it, like pretty you know extensive ones with the whole Falcon stuff, but like we don't know exactly to what extent, like you know how deeply changes were made, you know if there were I don't know 
Maybe back then, you know, uh, there were temples to elves or that kind of stuff. Maybe there were things like that. Maybe there were, you know, and so we, we don't know, you know, to what extent. So I, I think that's something to look forward to in the future because uh, I think we'll eventually get to know how things have changed between the ancient and the new city. And uh, that'll be, I think, a pretty big thing. So a large part of this episode actually is about Rickert uh, interacting with uh, Luca and the girls. Yeah can see him kind of showing off that as i said earlier you know that's a place carved for him here yeah in terms of his engineering talents in terms of his intuitiveness when it comes to machinery it makes a lot of sense for rickard to be here but i didn't actually write down a lot of notes about his interaction with the girls so i'm happy if one of you guys wants to take over there yeah i, I think there's a there's a one interesting thing here which is again nothing particularly surprising to to me at least but is that erica is pretty productive of Rickard, and so Despite the age difference and the fact she apparently hasn't aged that much, you know, over the years, or actually I have a hard time knowing what age she is, but she seems to be still pretty young. But yeah, I think it's pretty clear that she considers Rickard to be her turf, and uh, she calls him family, but uh, I think it's uh, eventually going to go from brother to husband, you know, like, and uh, the step will be pretty natural for her <clears throat> to take. And of course, the girls learn that. Rickard's not just some shalub. He actually has, you know, a strong connection with the leader of his city. And we're suddenly makes Rickard a hot commodity yeah, in the group. Yeah, yeah. And what I really liked about that, that panel in particular was Mir is already setting up the animal caricatures for some of those characters. The, uh, the girl with the cat face and the pig nose. Oh yeah. 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 Actually the, the pig one, I feel, I feel bad for her, you know? Because it's... Yeah. And Luca tries to comfort Rickard here because I think she, intuits that you know he's reaching a major decision and she's talking about how he might have regrets one way or the other but i think she actually misinterprets the situation uh, saying it's just a conflict among men and that men fight but you know i don't think she realizes that's more serious than that and of course she can't realize all the different you know nooks and crannies of this, this uh, relationship but it's more complicated than she knows it's, in- it's, it's interesting because you know she tries to comfort him, and her words are, you know, wise. But the thing is, she, she doesn't really understand. And, you know, like, it, that's just what it comes down to, is that she tries to be comforting, and what she says makes sense. But, yeah, she doesn't know the details, and those details are really what, you know, makes the whole thing uh, important. And Rickard explains it, and I guess that's, you know, to the benefit of the reader. But, uh, yeah, it's because uh, Griffiths and him were comrades in the past that this whole situation exists, that he could behave like that towards him, but also that he feels like that towards him. So And that he feels that he can't stay because of his former comrades and what happened to them. So, yeah, it's again a, a way to hold say, put forward, you know, the dilemma and the, the weight, the emotional weight uh, Ricard has to deal with. One thing that this episode brought to mind was, actually I've forgotten about, was Luca isn't just a she's not completely unaware of all the supernatural things that are surrounding Griffith. Yeah. She was there at Albion when the city what? collapsed and Griffith emerged, uh, you know, and Zod came to his side. So yeah. she's seen some kind of fishy stuff about the leader of the city. It's not a complete mystery to her. The other chicks were also there for um, the whole Albion thing. So, and yeah, and you know, you, you can tell that, you know, even from the fact they're, you know, essentially helping Daiba, you know, hide out. You know, they're already, I wouldn't say deviants, but, you know, they're kind of like, you know, skirting the law. Like, I, I mean, I don't think 
people would, you know, like the authorities would appreciate having, you know, a Garuda hiding out in a barn and Daiba being there, you know, as 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 the ancient crony of, you know, the big enemy Ganeshka. So I think, yeah, these girls are already, you know, it's it's no how to say coincidence that Rickert and Erika actually get got to meet these people. You know, something is going on. They are they are being, you know, put together for a reason. It is nice or interesting, at least, to see how quickly Erica turns, like on a dime, to say that she'll follow Rickard, you yeah, know, regard, regardless of what the decision is, because he's family. She says, "Yeah, I, I like how sure she was of that." Of course, it's you know, I mean, it's pretty easy because she has no one else. But it goes to show that she she doesn't have any second thoughts, you know, while Rickard actually does himself. But she's you know, like she's definitely you know. She would follow him into hell, and so I think that's that's a pretty powerful thing. And of course, we finally get word of Jerome, uh, which, oh, yeah. is, <laughs> which is a little bit of a shame for me. I mean, I was kind of looking forward to him returning. I like that guy a lot, but you know, you could kind of see that you know it wasn't going to work out based on what they said in Volume eighteen and Volume twenty one. You know, he had wanted Luca to come with him. He was a married guy, he's a noble, so he couldn't give up his life for her completely. But you know, his plan was to bring her on as a concubine. Uh, but it sounds like Luca wasn't comfortable with that kind of life, and their, Jerome's wife was kind of fierce, so it didn't quite work out, which is, you know, too bad. I, I think it's nice that Mira first didn't address it right away, but still ended up addressing it, you know, and, and, and in the way in which it did, <laughs> which was, you know, I think it was pretty funny and well done, and it's just a detail, but you can tell, I mean, people would have... I know I would have been wondering about that, you know, till the end of days. Oh, yeah. If he had not addressed it, that'd be a huge bummer. Yeah, it it would feel like it was just, you know, like Murat forgotten about it, which is just impossible. So, you know, it's pretty nice that he just, you know, uh, explained it away that way. And the scene kind of ends here with Daiba commenting. uh, He just has one line. I think it's something like, it's good to be young. Yeah. You know, I kind of read into that comment. Because, you know, you look at Daiba, and he's a guy, you know, a long withered beard, holding a cane and a leg brace, and he's someone who's kind of at the end of his life. You know, he's seen his former master destroyed, and not through Daiba's own hand, but indirectly, you know, kind of led him down that path. And you can kind of see him, you know, lamenting his decisions, and uh, when he's speaking this way, he's, he's looking at Rickert and seeing someone who actually has options in life still, yeah, so... Yeah. You know, it's actually interesting because if you look throughout the whole scene, he's in the background, like, you know, very early on. You see him in the background saying nothing, you know, but he's listening, he's watching, he's watching him tinker away. And he has that one line he says is, you know, being young is great, which can be interpreted as pretty much like, I envy your youth. So, yeah, I, I, I don't think you're misplaced in uh, interpreting it like that. I, I think uh, his comment, in a way, is also, uh, how to say, it's a way to tell Rika that he still has choices, whereas, you know, like you said, Daiba doesn't. And, uh, and that's interesting, and I think uh, Daiba is taking an interest into Rika, you know, and that will also play out in the, in the future. Like, like I said, you know, all these guys getting together, something is being, you know, something is, you know, is happening right here. <clears throat> yeah, the more we talk about it, actually, you know, the more I'll be really bummed if Rickard does indeed leave Falconia and... I just see so much potential here that Mira is building for those all those character dynamics. Well, the thing, the thing is, even if he ends up staying, like contact has been established with the Bakiraka, and so like these guys are already they're already in, you know in a relationship. I mean, something has already been established. 
So, like, he could go out and then re-enter the city, you know, through stealthy means, or he could stay in and become, uh, you know, I don't know, a liaison or whatever. But in any case, like, you know, the contact has been, you know, established and it's not going to go away, I think. Well, I think for, I mean, obviously for that to happen, I think Griffith would have to either have Zod intervene or, you know, maybe even himself intervene. Like you were sort of saying, you know, kind of rebuke Roxas yeah. and Locus and let them know that, you know, we're not going to do anything to, to Rick. Yeah. yeah, because I don't think like, I don't think Locus would go around, you know, trying to kill Rickert in the streets or, you know, whatever. Rakshas, you know, that fits more his profile. But yeah, yeah, in order for him not to do it, you know, like, because I don't think, like I said before, I don't think the Bakirakar, you know, would be able to defeat him and especially not make sure that he would never again try to hurt Rickert. But uh, yeah, I think either he would need to, I don't know, laugh it off or yeah, have someone like Zod or Griffiths intervene. And I don't think anything else could, you know, uh, have that result otherwise. But I mean, really, I—I I mean, I think of it though as uh, it's sort of a gots to go situation now. I don't really see how he can stay. Yeah. Well, yeah. The thing is, you know, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I, I'm not, you know, like I wouldn't put it past Mura to uh, introduce some kind of twist, even in that, like to have the fight interrupted, and you know, I don't know. We'll we'll see. Uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm. I mean, I, I mean, it's possible. I just feel like sort of what uh, you know. Why have Rickard almost get assassinated and then this street fight if it's not, you know, after he's contemplating whether to stay or go, this yeah. is sort of, to me, it's definitely a big signpost that, like, maybe you better get out of town. Yeah, I agree. But also, it also got me to wonder where the Bakarika could stay, you know, and uh, whether it's, you know, actually outside of the city or in some... I don't know, remote parts or abandoned parts. You know, maybe there are also yeah. catacombs or, I don't know, places under the city where they could, you know, have taken refuge. Uh, well, yeah, so I, I, that, that is a good point. Like, if they are living, like, under the city somehow, you know, they could take Rickert to safety and then he could, like you said, sneak back in and be yeah. reintroduced <clears throat> into the population. They could, could uh, kind of yeah, they, they could have, a, I don't know, a bit like the Ninja Turtles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, also kind of remind me of the Ninja Turtles. So, you yeah. know, be tragic before we're broken up. <laughs> and the following scenes, we have Rickert walking through uh, Falconia's kind of industrial area. And what's interesting here is, of course, the scale of everything, the scale of the weaponry. You know, they're preparing for something. They're making these weapons in a forge, and all these armors are laid out. And you know, presumably, these would be the kind of areas that he might be working in if he does indeed stay. There's an industry going on, and I feel like in Midland before anything like that, there, there was no such thing. It was still on an artisanal scale, but here basically, like it's the industrial revolution is occurring right in front of Rickard's eyes. You know, they are you know building, and you know they are building cannons and weapons, armors and and assault. So you know, like to me, that speaks of one thing: war. There's a war preparing, and it's a war of humanity against the astral world. I know I've been renting about that for years but now but yeah i i think you know i feel like it's pretty clear that uh something big is you know uh being prepared and it's not peaceful self-defense man have you seen what's out there well there's that's, a bear that's... in the woods <laughs> you're gonna be ready for it yeah that, that's that's whole there you know justifying it but yeah, yeah why let's not get into that it's uh <laughs> it's gonna be four hours long otherwise What's really interesting to me is uh, this panel where you can see the shipyard where 
things are uh, coming in and out of the water. Uh, it just kind of shows you the scale of the city. I, I think it's, uh, it's a canal, you know. And, canal, uh, okay, you know, right. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I don't pronounce it properly, but the, the thing is, uh, in ancient times, in old cities, that's whole most goods were trans- transmitted, you know, transferred. It was through boats, you know, uh, on canals. So I think that's uh, one way into the city. And I, I think we are not, definitely not, like this is not the edge of the city because there's the giant walls at the, you know, outside periphery. So to me, and there might be like several rings of, you know, canals like this and a, a whole, you know, uh, waterway connecting everything. Like, you know, in, in the old times, usually it was rivers, but I think uh, this artificial stuff replaces it. <clears throat> so it's pretty interesting to see. God, the more of the city that I see, I keep hoping there's like a map we'll see eventually that, you know, shows how everything's interconnected. Do you think that's something Mira has? That would be crazy. That would be a great goodie, you know, like us, I don't know, something to sell, like a leather map, you know. Oh, God, I would be all over that. And then, of course, we get this panel of the Falcons together, uh, sitting around a fa- uh, campfire. A very heartwarming, kind of uh, intimate scene with uh, these guys that are long since gone. It's nice to see these guys drawn in Mira's current style. I was actually trying to think when the last time we saw them was, I want to say it was like 23 or so. 23? Oh, no. Was there's, there's at least... There's at least 26. Uh, 26, sorry, Guts. that's what I meant. The Companions episode. I couldn't remember the volume. That's right. Yeah, but Guts wasn't oh. in the picture. <laughs> but, yeah, I guess Rickard isn't in the, the picture there, so, you know. It's, yeah, uh, he's, it's always whoever is seeing it. So, it's. I, yeah. I like these shots, though, whenever they do these sort of uh, reminiscing shots from, you know, and Guts looking at him. And Griffith, of course, in the background, you know, looking, you know, sort of more sinister than he would have otherwise remembered him. Yeah. yeah. And Casca as well, you know, what's interesting is she's actually facing Griffith in that panel. Yeah, talking to him. And, you know, while, while Guts looks at Rickert, you know, that's pretty... One thing I, I really like is uh, how it says, the contrast between what Rickert sees now, you know, the city, the industry, and, you know, that little, you know, camp with uh, Judo playing the loose and everything. It feels really like, you know, how to say, it's... So small scale, so small scale, so friendly, you know, really artisanal stuff, a band of, yeah, a band of thieves, you know, like, you know, it's really the good old days. And when you compare it to, I guess, the dream, what is now, it's so, like, it's incomparable. And, uh, and it's not, like, the comparison is not really good, you know. uh, I mean, he was, he was in on the ground floor and now it's like become this, you know, you know, before they were just making, you know, like soda, and now it's like he's looking at Coca Cola. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what, the, you know, this is not what we had in mind. <laughs> yeah. And he has CZ inside of the sausage factory, you know, and he doesn't want yeah. down on it. One thing that stuck out to me was this panel of Erica that Rickert kind of pauses on. I didn't, she's kind of frowning. I didn't quite know what to make of that yeah. uh, during the page. Yeah, it's actually interesting because it might also be his interpretation, like uh, how to say how he pictures it, because he's he's really thinking about yeah leaving the place. And actually, you uh, know, if you go back a few pages, you can actually see where that frown may have taken place. She actually is making a very comical or caricatured face, uh, but she is frowning. And I guess what we're seeing is Rickard's perspective of it. And you know, you can kind of read determination into that look, right? The fact that she is determined to go with Rickard regardless of whether or not that's good for her or not, you know. So is he making the right decision for both of them, not just her? 
or not just him. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's uh, her her dedication to him, and also you know his responsibility yeah. to her. You know, and that's sort of that that's what it represents. You know, and and the thing is the way in which she says it uh, with the girls, she comes across a bit like uh, you know a, a little girl. How to say? Yeah, pouting or doing you know? Yeah, stepping her feet and I go with him. You know, so. But actually, when, you know, in that panel, you see that she's not, you know, being childish or whimsical. It's uh, something she really means. And, and from the, what we know of the character, she's very, you know, diligent and dedicated. So there's no doubt she would. Of course, this is all preamble to the coolest moment of the episode, which is when, uh, you know, Rickard's on the precipice of a decision and he hears a voice behind him. He's interrupted. He turns over his shoulder and sees this dramatic, you know, view of the sunset behind this statue <laughs> with ruins surrounding him. And boy, was there a lot of talk about ruins. And it was exciting, but I and we think we might have overstepped. Well, just before we go on to the ruins, I really love the initial shot. Yeah, the sunset with Rickard looking back and like in the statue and Roxas on it because you can't necessarily tell it's him at first. Yeah. Like, it, it just looks like it looks like you, part you... of the ruins are. Yeah, you're wondering, you know, wow, strange hairdo on that guy. That's a yeah, that's a funky haircut on that statue, you know. <laughs> He's and a, then, uh, yeah. And I mean, it's just an unsettling image because of that. Yeah, just uh, such a looking. He's really like, uh, you know, people have we we try to think of what his apostrophe could be, of course, in a very futile, you know, manner, which I've led. But you know, I really like who is Persia because he's really a predator, you know, waiting on its prey. You know, he feels like he's about to. You know, how to say, pounce on on the on yeah. the target. <clears throat> I just I like see. how Rickert looks at him and basically sums it up as you know, causing darkness. You know, just seeing you know, yeah, darkness yeah. itself, like a shadow. And of course, as you know, this is yeah. unlike any apostle he's seen before. So he probably doesn't quite know what it is that he's looking at there. Yeah, and the yeah. thing is, he has the sun in his eyes, so he probably can't make yeah. make up the details. You know, at this distance. <clears throat> yeah, and I like the way we see him move, like slinking down the statue like that, like a snake. And then we get that shadow of him moving along the ground, which I think is less of an indication of his particular special abilities and more just Mira emphasizing his speed. Like we've seen him do with guts before. Yeah. Yeah. It's indicative of his, you know, speed. And you'll notice that we don't actually see the bottom of his cloak, uh, on that panel, you know, Griff, I think you actually said it best in the thread. Uh, there was something interesting about the way Rakshas is being really kind of menacingly sweet about yeah. giving his parting words here, you know, you know, before he holds a blade to Rickard's throat and, you know, ushers him out the door. And it's a bit a case of, don't worry, no one will regret you, no one will miss you. Like, you <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. It's, it, it's just it's just abject, you know, and, and it's, uh, yeah, like you said, Griff really put it well. It's just, you know, it's this kind of fake... Pretending to be nice, but really being odious is really it's all the more you know terrible. We've seen before that he can be how to say misshapen, you know. But but in that panel, it's really like he's clearly some kind of hunchback, and you know, and like when you when you look at the stinger he's holding at Griffith's throat, like the thing comes from down, you know. It's like you know you know what I mean. Like it's not- yeah, I thought about that as well. Uh, that bundled up mass that's holding the blade—it's kind of weird. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, but I don't know. It looks like it—it it, it might be a hand. I don't know. It's an appendage, but it's not like an arm coming from a shoulder. You know, that's that's my point. It it comes from I don't know somewhere in his body. Down but below, it's, yeah, gross. Yeah, it's it's not an arm. There's, 
there's actually no shoulders there, so you know it's it's again a pretty clear indication that uh, whatever's under the cloak, we don't want to see it. <laughs> no, no, we do want to see it very badly. Yeah, actually, yeah, we very much do, which we regret. <laughs> and my favorite part of this episode actually was this uh, coordinated attack on Rakshas that the Tapasa and Silat do. Yeah. You know, we see the Chakram fly, uh, and Rakshas did dodges and bounces away quickly, but then, you know, the pillar was thrown in anticipation of where he'd land, which is so cool, and it just explodes right there. And I actually like how the speech bubble, sorry, the sound effects are actually larger than the panel itself. Like, da da just yeah. massive and impactful. Well, and I mean, he's made light of them, you know, the last couple of times they they faced off, so they were due for a victory. Yeah. <laughs> they came yeah. in prepared. It was our times, uh, yeah. They got to one up on him, yeah. And and I like I like that the next page, you know, the first thing you see is the you know like hyper muscled up you know arm of the tabasa that threw the yeah. the, the pillar. And that's a great opening. And I guess that's it for Rakshas, then, right? I mean, that's a, that's a shame. <laughs> oh, yeah. What a shame! Well, with all the mystery still surrounding him, for him to go out like that so quickly. He got smashed. Oh, he's dead. Wow, nice one. I- I do like the moment where he's looking up at it and you see the pillar coming down on him. It's just, it's this sort of little, uh, I don't know, this little quiet, poignant moment where he does look vulnerable. <laughs> you know, he, yeah. I almost, I sympathize with him just for that second. All, all, all that's missing from it is a sweat drop, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, at the same time, he has no reaction. You know, he doesn't even have, like, the little, the surprise, like in the surprise panel, the little thing above his, you know, eye. There's nothing there. It's just, it's almost like, he just sees it, and there's acceptance, and it's just it's just there. But yeah, I don't. I also don't sense any sort of fear or worry from him. It's just yeah. And of course, the episode ends uh, with Silat saying that he wants to find the secret of the Falcon from Rickert. So I wonder what what it is he wants to learn. Like you know, if he's going to be disappointed, you know, because Rickert could pretty much only tell him you know things that he could have probably interpreted. Well, you know, like Rick- well, he's an unstoppable god. Or you can tell him, you know, well, he used to be a human and he sacrificed his comrades. You know, sort of dirty laundry information. Yeah, and, and I think uh, I think Guts, you know, told him quite a bit, you know. So I think he could, you know, also tell him that. Because Silat, you know, in the way, in the end, he has already gathered quite a bit of knowledge. So I think it's more a question of what his origins are, how he got that power. And, of course, I, I'm sure they will want to know what his goal is. But, you know, that's not going to be revealed. It's like just learning how hopeless you are, I mean, in a way. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, he wants to know what his agenda is. Because I, yeah. I'm pretty sure he feels there's an, there's an agenda at work here. And I think he probably understands that the world became what it is because of what transpired between Griffiths and Ganeshka. And so I think he understands that the world has changed, not for the better. And that, you know, the whole city and the whole thing is, you know, you can just smell something fishy, even from the character's point of view. So I think he wants to know uh, to what sauce he's going to be cooked, you know, and uh, maybe try to actually fight back if he can. Agenda? I don't I don't know what you're talking about. Griffith's out to help humanity. That's his, oh, that's his yeah. agenda, you know, the world's merging. Just, but, it made things better for humans. Life is just better, Azil. And they have this just really pretty real estate, all, all guarded by just the nicest monsters around. You know, because Griffith is so nice, uh, I'm suspecting the the other members of the Gold Hand are gonna rebel well, against. Well, 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 that's and true. He's gonna I don't need... know what you guys are. I don't understand this tone in your voice. That that is all absolutely true. It's Rickert. Rickert think... is the aggressor. Look at this. I... <laughs> he slapped him when he held out a friendly hand, and you know, oh my god. <laughs> 
I think I think Griffith is gonna need God's help to fight the that, other members of the God. That, that guts is rubbed off on him too much. It's a bad <laughs> influence. So about the statue, um, I'd really actually rather not spend too much time discussing this because there's so much back and forth already in the thread. And yeah. uh, my my opinion has kind of wavered back and forth about it because as I you know sat and kind of analyzed it and kind of sobered up to the reality of what it probably represents. But just long story short, you know this this is a very enigmatic statue. I think in my first reply to the episode, I'd said could it be question mark Of course, you know implying that this might be Geyseric. I think there are two possibilities. Uh, you know the, the ones that two that make the most sense. Uh, general possibilities and one is that you know these ruins appear special to us only because we haven't seen enough of Falconia to say that this area is special and two uh, you know it isn't actually a special area but either way there aren't enough identifying markings to say that this is definitely Geyseric you know there's no reason to suggest that this particular statue that's so featured prominently in this you know, panel has any other significance than just being a, a cool looking place to have a fight. Just, just pretend that it was a big rock that he was on top of. <laughs> and you know, the other kind of distant possibility is, you know, we don't know the condition of the city before it was destroyed. So we don't have a one-to-one comparison to say there's anything particularly special about its, you know, ruinous state. I mean, maybe this is actually an accurate recreation of that part of the city. They were already sort of relics yeah. in you know, in the first place, maybe to an older time. Of course, it could. maybe this is Gazric's tomb. You know, it's like a graveyard. <laughs> it's just, you know, a little anomalous from our perspective because we haven't seen any other ruins yet. And so everything heretofore has been restored in pristine condition. So the whole thing does kind of naturally make you wonder, particularly with the whole missing head thing, kind of, I don't know. It is, it is enigmatic, I think. It is interesting. It is a really cool thing to think about. In itself, if you look at the scene in itself, you know, first off, you know, like Mira needed a location which was remote in order for, you know, this confrontation to occur. So it had to be a place that nobody else was there that was remote. So might as well be a ruin because it's cool. And then there's the statue shot, which is, you know, in itself, it's, it's like I said, in the thread. It's, yeah. it, it's so cool by itself that it doesn't, it suffices to itself and it doesn't need anything else. However, yeah. you know, in order to lend some credence to what you said, I think... The fact it's in this area while nothing else is, you know, there might be other areas, but even if there are other areas of the cities that are not being revamped, you know, it's still something to think about. And it's still a seated figure. And, you know, like, it's not like antique Greece was full of these city statues, you know. Like I said, in Australia, I, inter- you know, it instantly struck me that this was very similar to the Zeus at Olympia statue. You know, it was one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. And uh, and so, yeah, I think, you know, if this was to be anyone, it would probably be Geyseric. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, dude, or, you it's, know, it's actually pretty amazing how our positions have completely reversed during the course of this well, podcast. You know, the, yeah. the, the thing is, you know, I'm playing devil's advocate a bit because, you know, like, uh, you know, I think this could just never be shown again and have no significance. Or it could be, I don't know, a standard, you know, how to say, just a standard guy, you know, bearded guy and just done as a work of art. And Mura just took inspiration from it because it's a cool statue in the real world, at least was. But, yeah, if it was ever to be revealed, like, that's my point. If the, If we ever see this statue again... You know, uh, back in back in his heydays, and it would be Geyser. It could be no one else, in my opinion. But yeah, you know, like, will we actually get to see it? Uh, I wouldn't bet on it. And 
I would be fine with that, honestly. It's just, it doesn't make a lot of sense for this to be Miura's first big hint about Kaiseric in a long time. But you want it to be. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the, the thing is, you know, like, when we, whenever we finally get to see Geyseric's era, you know, like, anything will be cool. So, honestly, like, a statue won't be needed because who fucking cares, you know, like... There's everything else. There's a fucking guy himself with his well, now, skull helmet. If that is Gazarek and, you know, Rakshas, we, we don't know why he was up on Ganeshka that one time and he's now hanging out on his headless statue. Maybe Rakshas is Gazarek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe, thinking... maybe we're never going to get to hear that story because, I mean, he's just got like a skull under his cape, you know, that he's hanging he was, on he's, to. He was actually shitting down his neck, you know. In a, in a Duke Nukem kind of way. <laughs> oh my god! And shit down your neck. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, pulling the how to say pulling the plug, you know, whatever. Uh, Actually, you know. I get the uh, I get the op from these last two episodes. I've gotten the opposite kind of feeling from the the God Hand lieutenants. I mean, from Griffith's Apostle lieutenants, and this whole organization in my mind has gone from being you know like seemingly insurmountably invincible and powerful so like you know what these guys are just a bunch of shitheads like anyone else you know they're yeah. they've got their they've got their agendas and you know their petty you know things that they take umbrage with and you know oh they're gonna try to kill her i feel like guts is gonna come in and you know he's gonna march into the city and locust is gonna be like oh oh how dare you and then the dragon slayer is just gonna come down on his head it's like <laughs> these guys aren't invincible you know, they're, yeah, you know, to me, they have become, you know, it's like getting to know them, you know, familiarity breeds contempt is what it comes down to. It's like, you know, so Locus actually has much more personality now and is very interesting, but at the same time, his aura of invincibility is gone for me. Yeah. It's you mean of, for Locus in particular? It, well, no, you know, Rock's just too, just all of them that, you know, it's like that they're not, they're not so invincible and untouchable. You know, the slap has done, had that effect and also the reaction to it has made them look even more, you know, you know, more vulnerable than ever. For but, despite all their power, it's like nothing has changed. They're still all powerful, but you you know, I I, I, I see the cracks. I I I get the feeling that, you know, like so far there was a plan that was, you know, hatched probably a thousand years ago, you know, by the Eid of Evil and something that was long planned and, you know, really machiavellical and with Ganishka and everything was planned and then the astral world and the merging and everything. But, you know, like, now that it's done, now, like, the big magic has all been spent, you know, like, the question is, is there anything else? Or is, is it now the time for just, you know, Griffiths and these guys and presumably the rest of the Godan to, you know, like, you know, do something with it? And is it where, you know, they are more likely to fuck up, you know, like, is it now yeah. that the grand plan, the story is not, you know, pre-written anymore? They gotta make it themselves, and is it you know now that uh, presumably like things could go wrong? Like you and, know, just and they've you know, always looked invincible, but that's because they were fighting a bunch of tomato cans. I mean, they were yeah. you know they never they no one they no one could challenge them. They were fighting children essentially, yeah. and so of course they would always win, and everyone would you know fall over in the face of them. And now they might be facing real opposition, and there could also be an interesting reveal where you know this re this makeover of the entire world maybe it used a lot of that evil power up. You know, yeah. maybe the God Hand is actually, in a way, at its most vulnerable point right now. It's at its weakest, and where it's like, it does have to rely on its monsters and all these things to sort of defend uh, defend what it's done and not have it be, uh, yeah. be undone. 
Well, we're getting to the end of the show here, and I just realized, actually, we haven't addressed something that's pretty big, and that's potential for a little bit of a conspiracy here, that Locus is disobeying a direct command from Griffith to hold back on Rickard, you know? Yeah. And perhaps recruited Rakshas, or at least pointed Rakshas in the right direction to go and do something about, you know, this meddling kid who slapped their great leader. It does kind of open the door, I think, for some interesting apostle dynamics with Griffith moving yeah. forward uh, when he learns about all of this. Like, like I said, I compared it sort of like to Julius, you know, Locus's, uh, you know, reaction. And, you know, it's like, again, you never want you never want to look like that, even just superficially. I think Silat bringing up Locus on the last page kind of suggests that it was Locus. At least that's where it seems like Mira wants our attention to be for that yeah, subject. Just, just by suggesting that it was him going rogue suggests that it was him going rogue. I mean, otherwise you could just not even bring it up. But yeah, you know, I mean, Mira's done these kind of things before, so I think it's possible that Rakshas will deny it, you know? It could be, yeah, it could be a double feint, you know, too. Yeah, it, so the thing is, you know, like, it's just like I said in the thread, I mean, I don't think Rakshas would necessarily need Locus to tell him in order for him to oh, go, yeah. you know. So it's possible, you know, they, colli- they colluded. It's possible uh, Locus, you know, told him and Rakshas went. It's possible Griffiths, you know, ordered it. And, and yeah, that being said, I mean, I, I think it's equal odds. Oh, maybe a little bit less. You know, the Rakshas, is, uh, he was a pretty independent guy who's also very protective of Griffith, you know, went at this himself after learning yeah. what happened on the bridge. Yeah. My, my, my what say, the way... The way I see it, Rakshas probably, you know, uh, you know, went at him himself, you know, by himself. And I would say the second most likely is that uh, Locus told him about it and Rakshas went, not, you know, ordering him, but just telling him, uh, yeah, that, that happened. I think, and, you know. I think it was definitely Locus. Like, I, to me, Rakshas going by himself, I mean, because someone had to tell him unless he was also spying and we just didn't see it. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Is it's, you, know, it, you know, it would imply that he... Had been spying on it, which you know, like I wouldn't put it past him. So you know, like either that's what you know happened, or yeah, Locus told him and he went, and that's what I think. And I also don't think it's likely. I mean, it, to me, it's the least likely that Griffiths actually ordered it. Well, I mean, it also definitely says that this is. To me, it also says this should be something that Griffiths should have ordered. This should not be happening, you know, to his this his friend that he invited to tea. However, it ended up out his uh, okay. So to me, that's just sort of, uh, it's all part of them kind of fucking up. First Locus with his lame threats that obviously didn't work, and then Griffith gets slapped. And then uh, if he didn't tell Griffith and ordered this assassination, and then the assassination being, you know, thwarted by Pillar. <laughs> so so well, to talk- me, it's just, it's not, it's, they're, they're not looking like the pros they should be right now. Well, well, it also shows that, you know, like no matter how you code them, no matter what paint you put on, an apostle is an apostle, you know, and it, it yeah, just they, goes... Their whole back- credo Griffith showed up was they're supposed to just be able to do whatever they want. Yeah, and it, I, I think they still, still kind of do, you know, like, I mean... <laughs> Griffiths is their master, but it's still their time. You know, like it's party time for them. You know, and uh, are they really I, oh, this military machine, or are they? Yeah, are they just doing whatever they want? And it happens to coincide with you know, hey, it's fun to decimate armies. You know, yeah, <laughs> like, that's together. It. You know, and I, I think they followed Griffiths because they knew there was a carrot for them at the end. And and I, you know, like to me. It's not that time yet, you know. They are still biding the time for now, and uh, the plan doesn't do something they don't want to do. So we'll see what happens. That does happen. 
Well, that's about it for 338, but before we go, I wanted to point out that there is a very unprecedented preview of the next episode or episodes uh, that appear to the end of the four-issue supplement that came with the latest episode in Young Animal. And on it, you know, what's noteworthy is that we actually have two unique panels, ones that we haven't seen before. The others are about 338. Uh, The two unique panels uh, appear to be Rakshas or... You know, given the size of the, of the cloak, we see maybe Spawn. <laughs> Spawn. We're having that big McFarlane Mira crossover we've all been waiting for. No, the, uh, the, the one interesting thing about that scene is uh, the length of the cloak. It's really big, covers the whole the whole statue. And the angle of the figure is uh, like completely unnatural, you know? Like, it's, that's not for the cloak to be like that, you know? Like, that couldn't be possibly be, you know? his whole body in order for that angle to be like that. So it, su- it suggests uh, he has a more massive body or at least, you know, there's more to it than that. So that, that's, a, yeah, that's an indication. That's, to me, that's the most interesting thing to take away from, you know, that little previous thing. And, of course, Luca and the girls responding in shock to some statement. Uh... And, I mean, most all the other shots, they look like they're like 338, basically. So maybe maybe this was just included by accident. I mean, there that's always that is possible. Yeah, I wouldn't actually put it past uh, young animal guys. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, that's gonna do it for the show, guys. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back in a month for episode three thirty nine three thirty nine discussion. Uh, if you haven't already, please check out our Patreon donation page, which is at patreon.com slash skullnight. Uh, where, you know, if you donate a little bit, $2 to $10 a month, uh, you can get forum perks and help contribute to our resident translator, Puella. Uh, she actually has recently completed uh, the Berserk Illustrations Guide interview translation, a really significant, big, long interview about Miura, about Berserk and his process and his history, and really, really, really awesome. For any fan of Berserk, you check that out. Uh, that's over in the assorted translation section of the forum. And I guess that's it. Uh, See you guys in a month, and thanks for listening.